If you're listening to this episode at the time of its release, we are now three days past a momentous anniversary in United States history, and it may be one that you've never heard of. On February 19th, 1942, which was exactly 80 years ago, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 into law. This was the law which effectively incarcerated over 120,000 American citizens on U.S. soil during World War II. Their offense? Being ethnically Japanese. Think about your own ethnic heritage. Where were your ancestors from before they came to America? Then imagine that that country does something against America and your government rounds you up, strips you of most of your possessions and throws you into an incarceration camp for years. Some kids who grew up there didn't even realize they were still on U.S. soil, wondering, when can we go back to America? And that's the title of the book, When Can We Go Back to America, written by Susan Kamei, whom we are speaking with today. In this book, she pulled together history and strikingly many, many first-person narratives that illuminate this horrific period in American history, one period that isn't taught, or, I mean, if it's taught, it's not taught well in our country. But this is a storyline that we need to be well aware of if we don't want our country to repeat the atrocities again, because we have come close and we may be close yet again, and we can all do something about it. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Would you please introduce yourself for our audience? Sure. I'm Susan Kamei. My day job is I'm the managing director of the Spatial Sciences Institute at the University of Southern California. And I also teach in the Department of History. So I have had the privilege of knowing you for a long time, mostly through different circles. Hi, mom and dad, um, <laughs> in different ways. <laughs> My mother does listen to our podcast, so she'll... Hey, Stephanie! She might. <laughs> I think she'll appreciate the shout out. But I would love it if you could share with your listeners a little bit. You talked about your professional career, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background, especially related to how you know, this book that we're going to talk about came about and your own history with regards to the Japanese American experience in the United States. Sure. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me on this podcast. It's such a pleasure to be included and to get a chance to be in conversation with you both. I am what is known as a sansei. That is a third generation Japanese American. My grandparents were the Japanese immigrants. They came over to the country at the turn of the century. And that generation was known as the Issei, or really in Japanese, uh, Generation One. And my parents were, and their siblings were, have been known as the Nisei generation, the second generation, although they're the first generation that were American citizens. And that gets a little, people ask me about that all the time, that gets a little confusing. So I grew up in Orange County. My dad's family were Orange County vegetable farmers. Uh, before the war and after the war. So it was uh, really being part of the community that was my dad's uh, stomping grounds. He was very involved with Japanese American organizations and was always uh, 
very much a part of the issues and the objectives of the Japanese American community, especially after the war and really throughout his life, and establishing the credibility of um, and helping、uh, members of the community. So I was able to grow up with him being. Involved in Japanese American organizations and issues, and when the 1970s, 1980s came around, when the first ideas of the progressive sanseis that were a little older than I am, saying, you know, what happened in World War II was wrong, and we should do something about that, and the nisei who experienced the incarceration as young people started to also. Uh, take up this question, and, and so I was familiar with it from the origins of what we ended up calling the redress campaign, which is a phrase that comes from the First Amendment clause that says, as citizens, we have the right to petition the government for、uh, redress of grievances.、Uh, and then I happened to be in law school in Washington D.C. at Georgetown when the first legislative activity. Was getting started in Congress, and so I was there at Ground Zero、uh, as a law student, and getting to be part of what was really an embryonic legislative and later also judicial initiatives that culminated in the passage of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 that I was really privileged to get to be a part of. So that was my sansei hook. Into the Ise and Ise stories that went into just the ramifications of that episode and what had happened after the war that most sansei would not otherwise probably have had,、um, and then everything went. Quiet, dormant. Life went on. Had a career not in、uh, the Japanese American community, and then with the issues that were coming up as the 2016 election was nearing and a surrogate for the Trump campaign、uh, floated the well, on national TV and in national media started floating the idea that there should be a registry for Muslims living in the U.S. And likened it to the justification of the incarceration, and those of us that had involved in and the same kind of arguments and the same kind of support and reaction to that proposal was horrifying to those of us that had been involved in the redress campaign. We thought with the Civil Liberties Act we had won, we had achieved something, we had proven that that was wrong, and we thought we'd fought that fight. And then we were just—I was just personally. Physically ill, just to hear what was being said in the press, and the old redress <laughs> guard got reactivated, and I started seeing people that I hadn't talked to in thirty years writing op eds and being on the news, and we were all starting to reconnect and talk to each other. What are you going to do? We got to do something. <laughs> what are you going to do? I don't know. What are you going to do? And I had an opportunity to talk to one of my colleagues. Here in the history department, who knows my background as in redress and as an attorney, and that I worked with the constitutional issues, and he said,、um, "You know, we have a new major here at USC in law, history, and culture, and we could use more electives for this major that that skew to the legal issues, and that with your background、uh, and your knowledge of the incarceration, what if you had a course?" That was、uh, looking at those legal, historical, cultural issues 
And to me, what would be important was the ramifications of those constitutional issues today. And it was that moment when I had that click that, okay, that's what I could do. And then he said magic words. He said, but I suppose you're too busy to do that. And I went, I will make time for that. And he said, you're on. (laughs) So I threw myself into getting reconnected and starting to look at things that I could put together in a comprehensive syllabus. It made its way, got great support, made its way through the curriculum, and then courses approved, start teaching it. And so that was 2016. And then in the process of developing the materials for the class, I realized that there's one, a lot out there, but no one's pulled it together in any one place. That for all the fine scholarship that's been done in many aspects of this, whether it was the redress campaign or the 442nd or the sociological, anthropological issues of the camp experience, they were all about particular segments or particular slices. And there wasn't any, and there's tons of great material out there. Densho is an organization, the Japanese American National Museum, but there wasn't anything that put it together in one place so that a reader that didn't know anything or was trying to start from scratch about the research had a framework for understanding where things fit in. The other thing I realized is that there were lots of repositories of testimonies, oral histories, oral interviews, articles, whatnot, about the uh, mostly the Nisei because they were English-speaking. And pretty much now the Nisi generation is not able to speak for itself. They're pretty much gone. And so there were some organizations, uh, the, the veterans, Densho and the museum and, and others that had done that really great work 30 years ago or so in filming folks and transcribing the testimonies and whatnot. So the material is available, but you had to know where to find it and you had to sort through it. So I had the opportunity to do this book for Simon & Schuster And I wanted it to be something that would be accessible to the non-Japanese American community and to make it personal and real and undeniable. So that's a long way of saying how I got from growing up in Orange County today, where in fact, this semester I'm, I'm teaching a course and have a really great experience in trying to learn from my students as well about the issues that are important to them. Thank you for sharing all that. I mean, I heard a couple of different things, including things like, it's great for us to lean into what we are good at. A whole population of people who had had similar experiences and are using their voice for other people based on their own history. And then also this idea that history, this is the phrase like, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And so for those who aren't as familiar with this idea of incarceration, Right now, we're recording this right before the 80th anniversary of Executive Order 9066. And so could you give us a little bit of background history as to what that order was and what it did with regards to civil liberties for Japanese Americans who were American citizens living in this country? Mm -hmm. The context that I think often is lost as we teach American history, either in our schools or the perception out there on the street, is that. Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, they became the enemy, and there was this reaction, wartime hysteria and reaction to that, without looking at the whole geopolitical context of what was going on with Japan as a country and vis-a-vis other countries, 
in the decades preceding World War II, and also without the context of what the Asian American immigrant experience was before, from the time the first Chinese came to the United States and then to be followed by the waves of Japanese immigration and the prejudicial policies that they were confronted with, as well as other non-whites and non-Christians. So in the book and in, in my class, when I talk about this, I actually start with that context because it wasn't just Pearl Harbor was bombed and there was this thing called camps. But given that backdrop, on February 1942, so in less than two months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed what is was named, was numbered Executive Order 9066. And it, in his power as the president and the commander in chief, gave the military the authority to designate zones of military strategic importance and to be able to remove individuals from those military zones. And so it didn't specify that it was about Japanese uh, persons or, or any other group for that matter, but it was a very clever order because it removed FDR from any consequence of the order. It was a military operation. And so the army created the Western Defense Command as a theater of, of wartime defense and designated essentially the West Coast from the state of Washington, Oregon, throughout California into strange bits of Arizona, and then defined that in a series of exclusion orders that gave on very short notice anyone who was of Japanese ancestry, the order, which was then made by Congress in Public Law 503, made it a crime not to obey. So the executive order was the starting point of what became the forced removal and the ultimately the detention of both the Issei as aliens who were not eligible for naturalization. But two-thirds of those that ultimately came under the detention of the War Relocation Authority were the Nisei generation, the American citizens. So there was this conflation that the government had the power to remove aliens, but in these exclusion orders referred to their American-born Nisei children as non-aliens to obscure the fact that they have rights as American citizens. And just to put that in context for anyone listening, like imagine what your country of origin is, right? Your ancestors. And imagine that country today does something to the United States. And then two months later, you're swept away out of your home with no protections and are put in an incarceration camp. Like that is what happened to Americans in this country. Yeah. Thank you for that background. Sarah knows I like love history and I love the constitution as well. So like this whole combination discussion, I'm here for all of it. And I grew up in the family that I did learning a lot about the incarceration. And I thought I knew a lot about the incarceration. You know, the Korematsu case was one of the reasons why I wanted to go to law school in the first place. But when I was reading your book, though, I realized there was so much that I didn't know about the incarceration. And it makes me think how little we as a country know about that. I mean, I remember going to college and having people 
just shocked that this had happened right. in the US. And this was at Harvard, right? And people were rolling into school like, what are you talking about these camps? I think about the book and your book is so great too, because it gave me ways to discuss this with my own family. One of the things I didn't know about the incarceration order was that it required that foster children, right, of Japanese descent be removed from their foster homes and sent to camps by themselves. I think about the separation of families that we had at the border and how this is repeating itself, right? And this was a surprise to my parents too. So I'm curious, what surprised you or what stood out to you as you were researching and writing this book? And were there any, because there are so many really powerful narratives, first person narratives in here, were there ones that stood out to you and why? I think I got to the point of realizing that no matter how much I thought I also had known, there was just no end to the depth of the tragedy and the heartbreak that the stories just, they just go on and on and on. And, you know, just when you think that, oh, there isn't anything else that could shock me, then there's something that shocks me, right? So it was this continual process of, of thinking, I thought I knew how deep it was in terms of how bad it was, but no, it's, it, it just goes and goes and goes. One of the things I talk about with the class, we have the luxury of doing it in a semester, is the government decision-making process and really how few people with their perspectives, with their backdrop, were able to make decisions that had such consequential damages. And so in addition to the narratives, it was really shocking for me to, for instance, telephone calls between the president and cabinet members or between, say, Secretary of, of War Stimson with the Assistant Secretary of War John McCloy or McCloy in Washington, D.C. and Carl Vendetson in the Presidio. Telephone was not a secure medium. Right? And so there were there were operators that were making these long distance connections and these phone calls were transcribed and they were recorded. And there's transcriptions in the National Archives of these telephone conversations, right? And so I think uh, on the non-incarcerated side, I was just continually shocked at, at things. That, you know, these are their actual words, right? And this infamous legacy is resting upon these decisions and the calls that these individuals made. On the incarcerated side and on the Nisei soldiers side, I think the ones that really moved me were, were the examples of sacrifice, were the examples of what family members were willing to do for one another. Just There's just so much heartache about, and there's stories that didn't make it into the book, but of a husband who watched his wife die in childbirth. And the Nisei soldiers, the ones that served in the 442nd and the 100th and MIS, and the ones that served in ways that we still don't know about and can't honor in specificity, just what they did for one another and what they were willing to sacrifice in terms of their lives. And so many of them came home with crippling disabilities. And yet their complete commitment to wanting to prove that they, and on behalf of their families and the rest of the community, were loyal Americans. That chokes me up every time. I, I play a clip in class of a video of a 442nd veteran. And he is from Hawaii and he's at the stage where he knows that our people are soldiers are coming back and they're, or he knows that they're being killed in Europe and they're coming back and they're maimed, they're disabled and they're telling him, don't go. 
And he comes from a farming family, and his family lost. So I'm trying to remember now was he, how his family ended up losing the farm. But what he says in this clip is that he's told his dad he took out a $10,000 life insurance policy. And he said, if I don't come back, dad, I want you to take that money and get the farm back. I tell the class in events, I cry every time. Well, what also strikes me is the story that's in, in your book about how they had sent a group of Nisei soldiers to training in the South. And, you know, they get on this bus and they're told that they're treated like white people, basically, in the South, which is also blows my mind because their families are being incarcerated. They're fighting for their country. They're going to this training facility. And then they see the bus driver, you know, just abusing this black woman who's got on the bus and wasn't, you know, sitting in the back. And so they, six of them, go beat up the bus driver because they're like, what the hell? And, you know, in those moments, too, I, I get this sense of hope, right? I get this sense that there is injustice, right? But if you stand up and you say something and you do something, you change that course. And so just the strength of character that these soldiers had in that moment, and you could see it again and again in the incarcerated stories in the camps, like just how in the face of injustice, you are going to fight for what is right and stand up, you know, as you can. Like that gave me hope it, through all of the, just the pain, you know, that, <laughs> that you were talking about that yeah. comes through this book. Yeah. The other is that the biographies of so many of the Nisei women, I think shed a light on the fact that so many of them did have careers and did contribute in so many ways, whether it's in education or in nursing or in medical fields or in the arts or in, as writers. And there were also those that were what I was familiar with in terms of the idea of Nisei women who were very dedicated mothers and spouses. And so I think as I was able to take a step back looking at all the biographies as they ended up, is that it was a nice, I think, I hope others will see it as a, as a showcase, really, of also roles of Nisei women that haven't really had a way to come forth. Thank you for sharing that. As you mentioned earlier on, you talked about Issei Nisei and Sansei, and you were just talking about the Nisei women. And it's something I wonder about, too, as the daughter of an, a Japanese immigrant woman, you know, there are differences between being the person who has brought themselves from their own homeland to another country, that Issei, and the children who are being raised in this new country as citizens from the time they're little. So can you tell us a little bit about those generational differences between the Japanese and Japanese Americans in this country that Nisei, the Sansei, like when it came to that period of time, you know, how they approached incarceration. And then also from your perspective, being Sansei, like growing up in a family who was affected by incarceration, what did you notice in your own experience? So many of the Issei at the time that they had come at the turn of the century, they made it work through the Depression. You know, they had whatever success they were hoping to build upon in the 1930s, and then they lose it all in the war. And so, for instance, for my mother's parents and for my dad's parents, by the time they were in camp and then were released from camp, they were, and some of the other incarcerated 
testimonies talk about this, that they were so demoralized, they'd lost everything. And now they were in their 50s or 60s or at a point when it was so hard for them if they even had the will to start over and do it all over again. So I think the impact on so many of the Nisei who were young people meant that they, of course, their, their education suffered. Uh, their educational opportunities suffered because of being uh, stuck in places where there weren't schools or adequate schools or schools that they ended up putting together for themselves. So many of them, whatever educational opportunities they might have otherwise aspired for themselves, ended up being committed to staying with the farm or the florist or you know, the gardening business or whatever, because they had my aunts all went to go work to go support their parents who really couldn't carry on or weren't able to restart. And so for the Nisei, it was, again, that kind of commitment, that kind of sacrifice to the family and having to put aside the opportunities that they might have otherwise have had. My dad was very much an exception to be able to go to college, Caltech, and to have a a career that was, he was the only one in the family that got a college education and had a career that wasn't in agriculture. And so I think for the Sansei, so for the Issei, many of them did learn enough English, but for the most part, they, like especially the Issei women, never learned English. And so they were dependent on, I think this is a very typical immigrant experience where even as young children or as teenagers, the English-speaking generation ends up being the helper, the supporter, the translator, the, in many regards, the caretaker for their immigrant parents. And when I was looking in the National Archives and my family's records, and they had to just fill out endless questionnaires and forms, and all the forms for my grandparents were in either my mother's handwriting or my aunt's handwriting. And you know, they, my mother was 14 when they went to camp. And so all of the documents of any consequence are being translated for them by their kids. And then for Sansei, there was this, we couldn't really, my family, because unfortunately my grandfathers had already passed away, but I just had um, such limited ability to know my grandmothers because they didn't speak English and I didn't speak Japanese. Um, And so as the third generation, what we got was, especially in my family, because my father was able to get an education, it was this, by and large, this enormous pressure on my generation to do well in school and to be successful in ways that their generation could not be by being professionals. The doctor, lawyer, dentist, pharmacist, because, because that opportunity had been denied to them for the most part. And I remember I was in elementary school and my dad just over and over and over would say to me, you have to be so good that no one could ever deny you. So, you know, talk about overachiever syndrome, right? (laughs) And I think it sheds light on that model minority myth. You know, sometimes people just throw that out there and like they expect Asian people to be so good, but A, obviously it's a myth, it's false, but also when you understand a little bit more about the source of some of that pressure that you're just talking about, this like the opportunities that were denied by virtue of governmental policies and wanting what's better for your children. I think people who are parents can understand that desire to want better for their children than what they had. And so it's a really deep motivation behind that pressure, not saying it was always easy at all to live through that kind of pressure. But I think to understand that in a broader context is helpful. Well, and it wasn't just about education. I think so much of the Nisei testimony is about why didn't we as 
children learn about this? Why didn't they talk about it? And so much of it was because it was so harmful and painful for them and they wanted better for their children. They didn't want to burden, the word burden comes up a lot. They didn't want to burden their children with their, with what had happened. They wanted better for them. And it, didn't want, and it was also the reasons of being too painful. But a lot of it was wanting, I would hear a lot, wanting to protect you. There are lots of reasons for decisions that my parents made that I didn't understand until I got into this. So for instance, um, the rest of my parents were, came from uh, families that practiced Buddhism. And all of my aunts and uncles and cousins, and to this day, remain very active in the Buddhist church. My dad was in aerospace, and he had a security clearance. He didn't want us going to Japanese school. He didn't want us to be Buddhist. And I put it together later that my brothers and I were very much outliers with the rest of my dad's family. He wanted to be sure that there wasn't anything about our family and him that would give any cause for what he'd already experienced in, in World War II. So. Thank you for sharing that. You know, And I think that raises an interesting question about history, right? And when we don't talk about history, because I think in your family and in other families of incarcerees, right, or where that history is there, it was the idea of we're not going to talk about this because it is so painful and we want to protect you from that pain. And I think right now we're hearing a lot of debate in the US, right, about how history is taught and who are we protecting, right, by not teaching the full history of the United States. And a lot of times that protection is directed at white people, right, and the comfort of white people in certain states, for example, in Florida, to name one. But this history is American history, right? This is our history. And so what do you think? And I love that you're teaching this class now. And P.S. Law, History and Culture sounds like the exact major I would have picked. Um, so I love everything about that. But what do you think should be the message when this period, when this the incarceration history and the history of civil liberties and Japanese Americans and that enduring history when all of that is taught in U.S. schools, because it absolutely should be taught in schools and not just starting, you know, in college when people suddenly get there at age 18 or like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea that we incarcerated American citizens on our own on our own soil. I'll start with the very first Facebook comment I got on the book launch day. The publicity started out with a bang. I was on NPR <laughs> and as the NPR segment was starting to roll throughout the country and I was hearing from folks. Oh, I just heard you. And the very first comment that I got was, heard your blip on NPR, everyone's rights during the war was protected. I don't think so. Okay, but that was the very first comment I got on Facebook. And then connection with the 80th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack, I had an op-ed piece that ran in the LA Times on that Sunday before on the Sunday before the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. My USC email is public. <laughs> and I got, as the story broke, as the issue broke, the very first email that I got on my USC email about in reaction to the op-ed was, it was very familiar to me of the kind of arguments I heard during the redress campaign. So it was 30 years later, here's someone that's saying all the thing, same things I heard at, in, against why we should pay attention to this 30 years ago. And goes through all that. And at the end of the email, this, this individual said, 
war is hell, everyone suffers, let it lie and move on. So I think, you know, to answer your question about why do we talk about history and how do we talk about history, it's because there are those out there that want to deny history. And what kind about when, when you were in law, law school, I, my constitutional law professor, the first one kept saying, it depends on whose ox is being gored. And I'm not sure I understood that. Sasha's laughing. I'm not so sure I understood that when I was in law school. And I think what gives me motivation and inspiration to keep going on this is that there are those that are willing to be open and then could become committed to issues when it isn't their ox. And so when we talk about, okay, this all happened, this individual's reaction, I mean, war was 80 years ago, move on, right? Well, it wasn't his ox. And yet I heard at the beginning of this conversation when the Muslim American ban, right? Like there was that ban. There was a lot of people in the Japanese American community who've been there before who were looking around saying, we've got to do something about this. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I think is very hopeful that even among, whether it's within the Asian American community itself or among other communities, that there is now a willingness to recognize we got to band our voices together and stand up and be there for one another. The last chapter of my book is allyship and hoping that in however way people are situated and comfortable, that it creates understanding and empathy and perhaps even allyship and solidarity in, in speaking up for one another. Because as the, some of the testimonies at the end of the book, Sue, Embry, Sue Kunitomi Embry says, we were powerless. We had no voice during the war. There weren't, but for some, you know, a few that were religiously motivated, Quakers and others, there wasn't any way for the perspective and the rights of the Japanese American community to be heard. They couldn't do it for themselves and there wasn't anyone that was going to do it for them. So I think that is a very important lesson for today. And it doesn't matter whether it was 80 years ago or yesterday. I think that that goes back to the ox because then it's really, it is everyone's ox. It is absolutely the perception is it's not my ox, but if we are going to be a functioning country, right, it is everyone's ox then. And so I think that, because I remember hearing something similar to that in law school, not an ox though, that was, maybe we had progressed past livestock at that point. <laughs> something difficult. <laughs> yeah, but I understand that. But I think that has been the perspective that has been taught to us, but that is not the perspective that keeps us moving forward. So... So then my question is, and I think in a previous episode, we heard this phrase, which I agree with, like, I can't make somebody else care about other people. But if we are the types of people who want to say we care about people or want to consider ourselves good people, we have to include caring about other people as part of that definition. How do you keep yourself motivated? Like when you have people push back and say that was 80 years ago or history deniers, you know, how do you manage your response to that? What do you say to that? Or do you just focus on those who already do care about others? Well, I think I have many more examples, especially since the books come out. I have many more examples, people who say that they want to learn more. And then from reading the book and learning more that they have um, a sense of appreciation, identity, willingness 
that they didn't have before. So I think it's winning the war street by street. If it's influenced even one more person to think about their relationship with others in a broader, less judgmental way, I'm, I'm thrilled. One of the comments that came in in a chat in one of the virtual events I did came from someone who shared that she's a sansei and a grandmother and that she didn't have a good way of understanding what went on uh, with her family. And she therefore didn't have formed in her own mind a way of how she would talk about it. She didn't know enough. And how, as a function of reading the book, she now has a handle on how she could share this with her own children and especially her grandchildren. So those are the kinds of examples that keep me going, that make me happy. I spoke, first airplane trip I took during COVID, went to a conference in Baltimore and had a topic related to this as a conference presentation. We were about 45 people, 50 people in the room. And it, it was mostly an East Coast audience and an international audience. Very few people in that audience knew anything about it. It had even happened. Most of the people in the room had no idea. And for the most part, they were shocked. <laughs> but that was a room of 45 professionals. And so there's a lot of work out there. You just have to keep going. I like that one street at a time, one book at a time, one conversation at a time, right? It is. I think everyone should read this book if you want to have a, an understanding of this period of time in our country. And not only that, but how it relates to where we are now and where we can go from here. So if people want this book, where can they get the book? Where can they find more out more about you and all those good things? It is available on every possible source on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, indie books. So whatever in independent bookstores. I keep signing them at Romans. <laughs> I love Romans. <laughs> yes, <Dana. laughs> um, there's a ebook version and there's also an audio book version. And there's information on the Simon & Schuster website. You could just Google Simon & Schuster and Susan Kamei. And also I have a website, very complicated URL, susanhkamei.com. Cute story I'll tell on my mother, who's about to be 94. So book launch, we're getting ready and have to get a website, have to get the social media in gear. And so I'm, I'm telling my mother that I have a website now. And she says, oh, okay, I need to write down how to find it. And so I said, it's really easy, mom. It's susanhkamei.com. And she goes, oh, let me write this down. <laughs> I go, mom, it's my name, susanhkamei.com. She goes, I, I want to write this down. Right? Would you write it down for me? <laughs> That's awesome. She's 93. Yes, I will write it down. <laughs> I just enormously appreciate this opportunity to talk about this with both of you. If anybody has any questions or would like to continue the thread in any way, there's a get in touch with me option on my website. As an Asian American woman in California with the rise of AAPI hate coming up, so many people think it's new. And obviously right. your book shows really clearly that it's not new. Can you talk about this latest wave and, and how you're processing it in light of your intimate knowledge of a period in time and history where it's so clear that anti-Asian hate is not new? Well, my daughter who lives in the Bay Area and is now in proximity with her cousins on her dad's side was hearing from her cousin who has family in Oakland about uh, being threatened on the street. So when all this was starting to happen and it was really starting to hit home because it just wasn't something that we were 
reading about in the news, it was all of a sudden my daughter and her cousin and by extension telling me, sort of, you know, mom, you need to be careful. And I, it reminds me of um, a time when I was in junior high and Orange County demographically was very different then than it is today. And by and large, it was very white and no, maybe one or two other Japanese families in my entire school and, and no other diversity. And I remember coming home one day from in junior high, and one of my classmates had called me a jab or made some kind of derogatory comment. And I came home really angry and and told my mother and thought she would be indignant on with me on my behalf. And I'll never forget her reaction. She actually got angry with me because she said, you have no idea what racial discrimination is. And this was the first time I'd ever heard her talk about it. She said, you had somebody who called you a name. You should be lucky he didn't throw stones at you and throw tomatoes at you when they was thrown at me. And so when we think about how horrible some of these instances are, it is horrible, but so much has had already happened in, in the past that, that even as a member, as someone I think is knowledgeable and aware of what goes on in the Asian American community, that I just remember what my mother said about, you know, you have no idea how bad it was. And there have been times when I have felt threatened, and yet it was nothing compared to what I can imagine my mother and that generation had to deal with. And so when we talk about how paralyzing the fear and that trauma was, I have a lot more forgiveness and a willingness to let the individual decisions that the Nisei made honor that there was no right decision and there was no right way to handle it, that they all had to make sense of it the way they could. And I think having that in mind today is what I hope will motivate. We talked already about standing up for one another and seeing the examples of other members of the community wanting to walk with senior citizens in San Francisco, Chinatown. Um, but things, you know, things like that, I think we have to appreciate and encourage and, and think of. I already feel like in our show notes, we'll have to have some extra like kids books to read if you want to be an ally to your children, you know, like normalizing the Asian experience. I mean, I would love to just mm. make sure we give people all the tools mm. after this conversation because that was really powerful. Yeah. Awesome. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.